Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. Friends, welcome to Diner Talks with James. I'm James. So let us jump right into our top three top three. Remember, as always, if you are interested in being a part of this episode, if you have some questions, you can feel free to let me know what you wanted me to talk about in the top three, top three. Put those suggestions. You can put them in the chat. I'll talk about them there, or we can talk about them at another point. If you want to find me on a slide into these DMs, you're trying to hit me with that text, boo, you up? Yeah, I'm up. Anyway, feel free to let me know what you want next week's top three, top three to be about. So, first off, top three, top three. This one's coming from Dan Fail. Dan Fail in the house, jump, jump for joy. He asked me who my top three favorite podcasts are. Top three, top three favorite podcasts. First out, my boy Antonio Neves has a, a podcast called The Best Thing, and I think it's an incredible. He's one of the best interviewers that I know, one of the best question askers that I know. It's called The Best Thing. It is exceptional. He interviews some really high-profile people who are doing some awesome, awesome stuff. I just love his style as well. No, it's a really cool show. Uh, it's The Best Thing That Happened to You That's Not... The day your kids were born, that's not the day you got married, that's not like some of those quintessential obvious best days, it's got to be the next best thing. So, that podcast is called The Best Thing, it's really good, check it out. Next. Next thing is by my man, Mike Rowe. Mike Rowe has one of the sexiest voices in modern times. Maybe you know him from Deadliest Catch or Dirtiest Jobs. He has a podcast called That's the Way I Heard It, and it is awesome. It is, uh, it is the, 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 uh, the, the, the podcast for the curious mind with a short attention span. Essentially what it is is it's 11 minutes long, and he tells an entire story, and then he tells you who the lead character of that story was, right? And, and that was none other than John. John Bon Jovi, that was nothing than Michelle Obama, King Lear, that was whoever. It's a really cool podcast. And lastly, Ear Hustle is my favorite podcast of all time. It's done by the prisoners of San Quentin out in California. Um, and it is an exceptional podcast that is a really powerful window into prison life and also just after uh, incarceration life as well. It's really done really well. Um, and I, I proudly support that. That's the first top three, top three. What's your favorite podcast? Let me know, friends. Let me know what your favorite podcast is. I'd love to hear it. Next. Top cities. This one, my boy Brendan asked me top cities that I've been to abroad. First off, Siena in Italy. Siena in Italy is beautiful. It is magical. My wife and I had a really incredible time there. Uh, I'll tell you about it when it's more appropriate to do so. Not in public, but we had a really special time there and it was awesome. Next, Vancouver. The Couve is incredible. It's got one of the best aquariums I've been to. Just cool vibes and they do really cool stuff for their residents and I really love Vancouver a lot. Last but not least is Vienna with a V. Vienna is probably the most beautiful city I've ever been to in my life. And also, if you're going to serve me non- stop bratwursts, I'm probably going to love you. So shout out to that. Have you ever been to any of those cities? And have you ever been to Siena? Have you been to, uh, have you been to Vancouver? Have you been to Vienna? Any of those places? Um, so those are my top three cities that I've been to. Another friend asked me what top three travel destinations. I would probably put Iceland on top of all of that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's what I would say. Although we all know the best city in the world is New York City. You're welcome. Thank you. Next. 
My dad chimed in. Listen, whenever my family chimes in, you know it's going to be interesting. My dad asked me, my dad asked me, he said, James, what are the top three funny things that have happened to you? Y'all, I could probably do a number of these top three lists. I don't even know if these are the top three. These are just more like the first three that I thought of. So here we go. The first three things that I thought of when my dad asked me, what are some funny things that happened to you? First off... I remember I was an RA in college. It was about halfway through the spring semester and one of the residents needed to leave for whatever reason she had to transfer, whether it was financial grades, I don't even really know what was going on, but it was late at night and we were hanging out in the lounge, the lounge, right as you come up to the third floor of the building I was on, it was right as you walk out. So it was an amazing social spot and uh, it was awesome. Tons of couches. We'd hang out there every single night. I loved it. And I would notoriously fall asleep at some point in time. So this night was no different so I fell asleep and apparently this young woman came out and started to tell everybody listen I'm 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 really sad to be leaving I love the community I just loved it here like I don't even want to leave yet but I just need to to support my family and just it's the right thing to do and I just I just you know I but it just kills me because I love it here and I'm sad and and hopefully I can come back next fall but I just don't know if it's in the cards and I at some point as I mentioned, was asleep, and then at some point just woke up during the middle of her monologue and just said in a half-sleepy state, Take it easy! And then I fell back asleep. That's uh, role modeling behavior at its finest right there. Next, number two. Number two, I was once, uh, a fun fact about me, I love, I'm a bit of an audiophile, so I care about speakers, I care about headphones, I care about microphones, all that kind of stuff. I want to try to get top-notch stuff in all those places, and car audio is where I spent most of the money that I ever made before the age of 22. Um, I don't have a drinking, I, I, I never drank in college, uh, I never really partied, I, I would go to parties, but I wouldn't be like getting hammered and stuff like that. Um, where I spent all of my money was on car audio. So I have a lot to show for it right now. Anyway, so I was installing some new speakers, uh, some new speakers, some three ways in my door of my car at the time, an 80, 1987 Buick Grand National. And I was installing the speakers in the car door. And and uh, and so it was there. It was a hot day. And I was figuring out. I was like, yo. I was like, hang on a second. I was like, Brian, I told my buddy Brian, I said, who was helping me. I said, Brian, I was like, I can't figure it out. There's this glass in the door. Why is there glass in the door? Like, that's the dumbest place. Like, I guess it's like protected down here because you can't like break it. But like, how am I supposed to install this speaker with the damn glass in the door? And he said, James, your window's down. <laughs> cool. Anyway, third thing. Last story that I'll share you is that I lost a fight with an oyster. Let me rewind. I lost a fight with an oyster. I was a member of the free diving club. Here's what free diving is. It's scuba diving, but you hold your breath. And so you learn how to hold your breath for a long time. It's really ideal for things like spear fishing. Um, and also you just disturb the nature a little bit less. It's just a really cool way to learn how to hold your breath and get to see nature in a less, less disturbing way. Um, and so, uh, so I was a member of that club in college. And, uh, and, and so one night we all decided to do a nighttime free dive. So I had my, I had my flashlights out. Some people were out 
out there trying to spearfish for rockfish and grouper and stuff like that and bass. And uh, I was just there because it was something to do. And, uh, and, and I was just excited. And I, I'm a marine biology nerd. So, so we're there. I'm diving, having a good time. I'm diving deeper than I've ever gone before. I'm going like 40 feet below the surface and like getting to stay down there. It was really cool. And then uh, right at the last, at the last minute, everybody's like, all right, let's get out of here. It's time to go. Let's wrap it up. I was like, cool, cool, cool. Um, and then a friend of mine was like, hey, hey, I'm really sorry. I just kicked my goggles off the dock. Can you do me a favor? Can you can you dive down and see if you can see them? Sure, no problem. Now, I had been diving away from the dock the entire night and hadn't really thought about it. Um, so instead, I was like, oh, I can help. Let me dive down. Took three big gulps of air, drove down. And then I didn't think about the way water works because the water on the top is moving one way, the water at the bottom is moving the other way, so the current carried me under the dock. And when you're down there and you run out of air, it's time to come up. So you shoot up as fast as you can. You don't have to worry about things like the bends with scuba diving because you don't have any compressed air in your lungs. Instead, you just shoot up, and I smacked right under the bottom of the dock. It's honestly a miracle that I didn't die. I could have easily broke my neck. Um, but I smacked, it hurt, and I was like, oh shit, I'm under the dock. And I quick tried to dive to the side, and I was able to come up and uh, then I had to play it all nonchalant I was like yo bro listen I was down there you know couldn't find your goggles I'm really sorry and he's like yo dude you're bleeding I was like what are you talking about and then I move my I remove my mask and my whole my whole left eye floods with blood and I just had all this bleeding. I wound up having to get 12 or 15 stitches right above my eye uh, from where this oyster totally kicked my ass my roommates decided it would be funny, so they duct tape an oyster to my door for the rest of the year. My friends, that is tonight's top three, top three. You're welcome for it. Again, if you want to chime in next week, let me know. Let us get to the episode. Tonight, we have an incredible man. Incredible man coming to the stage. This is my man, Steve Whitby. He's also a speaker, um, but he's one of the best storytellers that I know. He's an exceptional human being. He's such a good human being that Tina and I asked him to officiate our wedding because that's how special we believe he is and how dynamic of a man that he is and just how much we love his character. And I'm excited because he's got some cool stories to tell and he's got some really interesting experiences. Let's bring him on right now. Do me a favor. Go ahead and smash that heart button as I'm bringing in the man, Steve Whitby. What up, brother? Hey, hey, hey. How you doing, James? I'm good. How are you doing, man? Not bad. Not bad. It's a Wednesday night and tropical storm just rolled through Charlotte. So rain just stopped. I'm good with it. Like an actual tropical storm? Yeah, Bertha, you not up on the news? You're like, oh, what are you doing? Bertha. Yeah. Yeah, no. I'm sorry. Here in Minneapolis. You know nothing about it. <laughs> uh, well, I knew there was a tropical storm. I wasn't paying attention. Here in Minneapolis, unfortunately, <laughs> we had the wrongful killing of George Floyd. Um, and uh, so yeah. I was out at the protests. And uh, um, and so, yeah, so I'm sorry. My mind's gotten wrapped up there. Um, but any any wind damage or anything on your home? No, no. It's just rain. It, it was literally a tropical storm by one mile per hour. So... Um, not really. It's an imposter, if anything. So just gave us a little bit of rain. <laughs> hey, look, Ma, I made it. There you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I got a name. I got a name. That's the thing, right? Like, I mean, if you're still, I mean, obviously the goal is to be a starter in the professional sports league, but if you're riding the bench, you still have made it further than 99% of the people who thought like, I could pick up a football. 
Yep. <laughs> I'd love to be the, the 25th man on the roster for any major league team, even if it's only for one day of the season. I'm in yeah. for that. No problem. Yeah, exactly. My nephew actually told me, he said, Uncle James, you know what I want to be? He's like, I want to be I want to be a punter. And I said, why do you want to be a punter? Um, I was like, you know, you could be anything. And my, my nephew is about, he's nine years old, right? <clears throat> nine years old. And he says, well, I want to be the punter because I can come in and do what I got to do and then never get hit and still make a lot of money. <laughs> I was like, yo, this guy's got to figure it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I could take the pressure of a punter job, but uh, he's like, everyone's looking at you. You got one job. You're not even a kicker that has to do multiple kinds of kicking in a game. Yeah, you got one kind of kicking, and that's it. That's it. That's it. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm terrible at punting, um, and uh, that's a fact that you didn't need to know about me. So I'm pretty much terrible at sportsing, so, you know, I, <laughs> I watch him, but, you know, I love not it. a good thing for me. Yeah, for sure. Well, Whippy, I'm glad that your uh, that your family is safe from the just about a tropical storm, Bertha, <laughs> uh, <laughs> down in North Carolina. I know y'all get a bunch of those storms, so this was uh, not, probably not much to scoff at. Um, but yeah, but Whippy, here's what I want to dive into, brother. Here's what I want to dive in because I'm, I've known you for, for a number of years now, actually yeah. almost, almost 10 years, which is really special. Um, we got brought in, uh, to an, a speaking agency the same year. And, uh, and so here's what I want to talk to you about is that you're one of the biggest dog lovers I know. Um, <laughs> like you just love, like whenever you see a dog, you were petting the dog, you're like, you just love dogs, but you don't have any dogs yourself. And, but you're not allergic. Um, so no, what's, no, what's going Whippy? Why don't you have any dogs? So this is a more complicated story than you think it is, James, because oh, there's okay. a, there's a layer inside this that you have not yet unpacked with me. And so th this is going to be a fun little surprise for you anyway. I but so wait. I've been married to my wife for 15 years and Tammy is incredibly tolerant, inc incredibly intelligent woman. Shout um, out to Tammy. Yeah, she's wonderful. Um, and uh, I don't know, long about a year and a half into being married to her, uh, we or I guess a year into being married. We were having one of those conversations you have when you're relatively newly wed. We were in our 30s already. And so uh, I don't know how we got to this sort of agreement, but we sort of were sitting on the edge of the bed in the first house that we lived in. And we were having this conversation, which was this is a year where we should do something big. Um, you know, we, we've gotten over the hump of the first year kind of thing. Um, so this year we should, you know, get a dog or have a baby. Mm -hmm. And I asked Tammy, well, do you want to have a baby or do you want to get a dog? And um, three years in a row, she chose baby. Um, so in the, the, in the span of about two and a half years, we had three children. Um, she did the, really the lion's share of the work, but I'll use we anyway. Um, and, uh, but we had three children in three years, um, three girls. And so my first two, Talia and Ren, are uh, less than a year apart. They're Irish twins. Sure, um, yeah. And then uh, my third, Elliot, was born and was already very alert before Talia ever turned three. That's how close together they were. Um, like Talia and Ren are so close together that for Ren, who's my second, for her first birthday, I'm sorry, for Ren actually got to attend her older sister's first birthday. That's not that common. 
Like that's not a thing you get to do very often. Like most of the time you're maybe hanging out in the womb at best, but no, she was, she was out and she had her eyes open and everything to watch Tally eat the like ladybug um, cake that Tammy made for her. So yeah, three kids in three years. Um, but here's, here's the rub James. Okay. Um, and I, and I will, I will resist calling anybody in here right now, but there is a beagle in my house now. Hold up. There's a beagle in my house. Uh, for now, exactly almost one year, we have had this beautiful beagle foxhound mix who is as ornery as any hound could possibly be. Um, but uh, long about last May, as my family was going through some big changes, um, Tammy looks at me on a Saturday afternoon. We were walking past this like animal rescue thing that's going on. And she looks at me and she's like, maybe, maybe we should get a dog. And I'm like, uh, is there more to this conversation than, <laughs> than I'm thinking here? Because every other conversation we've had about maybe we should have a dog has resulted in a daughter, which I win. That's wonderful. That's amazing. But I'm like, I am not prepared. There is a lot of change going on in my life right now. Maybe we shouldn't be talking about whether we get a dog or not. But by the end of the day, we had a dog. <laughs> and so now we've got a beautiful, a beautiful little floppy beagle named Nellie in the house. So I'm still completely outnumbered, all women in the house. Um, but uh, except for me. But uh, yeah. So, so the, the dog is oh, the dog's name is Nellie. The dog's name is Nellie. Yes. Great name. Great name. That's, that's so first off, that speaks to how good of a friend I am that I didn't know you had a dog for a year. Um, so that's, uh, that's I don't that's I don't travel with her or anything. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. And you love to talk about yourself. That's why I had to force you to do this. Show. <laughs> um, so uh, <laughs> it's basically why you're on here is just to make you uncomfortable for an hour and we all get to watch. It's uh, just watching me turn various shades of red <laughs> as I attempt to turn the conversation to you. Perfect. So. Perfect. Well, unfortunately, your dad's watching um, <laughs> and he, he told me to tell you that you should behave yourself. <laughs> Ignore um, the 80 year old man around the corner. Yes. Always a good idea. But also that. If mom loves your shirt. So, so far, your dad is my favorite person that's ever watched this show. Well, uh, <laughs> about the shirt, what's funny is I sat down and then I realized I looked at Facebook on the ad for this and I realized this is the shirt that I'm actually wearing in the headshot that you have up. So yeah. apparently I didn't think you could recognize me in a crowd or something. And so I had to wear the same <laughs> shirt so you can make sure to find me like, oh, OK, it's you. You're wearing the same shirt. Okay, so. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I love, well, it's a great looking shirt. Well, this Started well, this has started brilliantly. So yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, I mean, I appreciate you for staying on brand. I mean, you know, that's, that's it. I had somebody call me out today on social media because I posted a video um, and uh, and I was wearing the same shirt that I did a speech at a virtual speech for her school or her conference at. Um, and she was like, you must really like that shirt. I was like, these are like three weeks apart. Can a man wear? <laughs> she was paying attention. That's all you got to be that she was paying attention. Yeah, that's real. That's real. Speaking of paying attention, Whippy, here's one. Uh, here's one thing that you mentioned earlier is that you now are still after the addition of Nelly. You are still the only man in the household. You are the uh, the father to three incredible daughters who I've had the opportunity to watch uh, do cartwheels down the street on our way to get ice cream. And, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> they randomly were like, can we do cartwheels all the way?
way there? And I was like, if you can, sure. <laughs> and they did. So, and they were uh, using we in a way that they really probably did actually intend for you to participate. Yeah. Yeah, no, for but, sure. Yeah, no, I put uh, I put the no in cartwheels. <laughs> so <laughs> that'll work. Um, but uh, but I'm curious. You know, we are in such a an important time in history for men. A really mm-hmm. important time for history and men, where we uh, we have we've been put under a microscope because we were comfortable for too long, um, and that's understandable. Um, but I'm curious to hear for you what. Uh, oh, I, I'm not entirely sure exactly how to ask this question. So give me a shot here. But what are the pressures that you feel as a man? And I should say a very conscious man as well. And dare I say woke. Um, <laughs> I'm very fancy. Um, but uh, but as as a conscious man raising daughters uh, today, how 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 has that been? How like when you when the when when Elliot came around, your youngest, were you like another one? cool got this uh or like where like how how has that experience been for you as a man raising three women today well i'll take a couple attacks at that first of all um you bring up something really interesting which there's a bias involved in that i didn't realize was as strong as it was until it happened to me directly and that's after after you have two daughters in a year, people ask you a lot of questions. I mean, if you have any children, like two children in a year, and they're not coming out at the same time, people ask a lot of questions about sure, your yeah. sanity and mental health and all this kind of thing. <laughs> um, but when it was when they were both girls, um, there's a logical next question that I'm betting you could ask me right now with no prompting whatsoever. What's the immediate question that what, that comes when Tammy gets pregnant with our third child? Do you want it to be a boy? Do you want it to be a boy? Yeah. 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 Like, are you, are you excited? Are you hoping this is going to be a boy? You know, yeah. whatever. Because with all three of my children, we did not find out uh, what their sex was going to be before they were born. Because, I mean, we figured out we're going to find out like at some point. So, you know, you did, you know, an extra couple of months wasn't going to make a huge difference kind of thing. So we didn't find out ahead of time. We waited until they were born, had our list of girls names, had our list of boys names, some were sort of crossed over a little bit, that kind of thing. But with Elliot, the questions were pretty consistently like, Oh, I bet you're really hoping for a boy. Cause you've got, you know, two girls. Um, I'm a massive baseball fan. Like, do you want someone you can play sports with? And I'm just like, first of all, heck with you. Um, but I had this moment where I realized, um, no, actually, I'm not hoping for a boy. A, I don't know if I speak boy at this point. I speak girl relatively well in the infant stage. Like, I don't know if I know how to deal with the hardware at this point of an infant boy and, you know, like raising a boy at this point. And there was some intimidation with that of like, I we're, we're doing this okay with two. Do I want to change the script that much? But I was amazed that there was that level of expectation that everyone just assumed as a dad that I needed to have a son. Um, and so hearing that question so consistently, I think made me from the very beginning hope that it was a girl because I had enjoyed so much already being girl dad to Talia and Ren. And granted, it was still new at that point and I was still barely sleeping at all. Um, but I, I was more than ecstatic when my third child was a girl, too, because it gave me the opportunity to raise three girls that will someday become women in a pretty consistent way. I don't have to, like, I respect, golly, I respect people that can parent both 
genders in that they can flip that switch to some degree because there are differences and needs in the way that you raise them and questions that you get asked and things that you have to teach and, and all that. And so I love the consistency of it all being girls, but I have learned the depth and richness of they are three girls that can be confused for either twins or triplets sometimes. Cause I mean, like we're white Anglo-Saxon, you know, blonde, you know, I mean, there's a lot of similarities between them. When the two oldest were really young, they looked like twins and all that. They can be confused as if they're a unit, um, but they couldn't be more different from each other. And so learning the depth of differences between them, I think, has been the key to trying to parent them. I can't say that I'm successful yet, but I think embracing just how different they are from each other, even though they're all three little blonde haired girls, um, I think is at the core of it right now. I mean, you've met all three of them, you know, they are confusingly different from each yes. other. Yeah. Um, Talia is a gifted musician and singer and just into everything that is artistically natured. Ren next is like the two time state champion gymnast and just, but also the goofiest thing that ever walked on two feet, you know, and Elliot is like a cuddle machine factory that sort of combines the artistic bent of Talia and also does gymnastics too, at a very similar level to, to uh, Ren and seeing the depth of differences, I think is going to be part of the key of parenting them further beyond the fact that they're in middle school. Um, That's the beauty of Elliot though, is that, I mean, she has the glory, the glory of being the baby of the family. And you know, we babies of the family are often (laughs) exceptional mixes of, uh, of the ones who came before us. So if I do say so myself, of course, Um, but uh, (laughs) yeah, Uh, but you're right. You're right. See, they are completely different, but uh, they do at first glance look like they come as, as a mob, right? Like here we come. Oh yeah. The blonde mob squad uh, (laughs) cartwheeling their way over to me. And uh, (laughs) so, yeah, it's, it's incredible to, to, to get to learn their differences. And, and I want to, as I promised you, I would do anytime you make fun of yourself, I'm going to call you out. Um, And so, you know, I'm not successful at it yet. I think the interesting thing is how you define success because you have three beautiful, brilliant children who love the hell out of their parents and are doing well in school and are, are driving are following, pursuing their passions. I mean, if that's not what success looks at, that looks like at this point of parenthood, I don't know what metrics you're using, but you can feel free to beat up yourself on somebody else's show. Um, <laughs> I'll take it for now, but most of that I will attribute to my wife. You've met her and you know how significantly better she is than I am. So we'll, we'll go with that for right now. Tammy, Tammy is an exceptional human being. Uh, my brother has twin girls um, and true twins, too, not Irish twins. Um, and the question that he gets asked most of the time is if he's gotten the shotgun yet. <laughs> this is interesting because um, as a man, and sp- particularly this, you and I do a lot of work with men around the country. And mm-hmm. so we see we see the greatness that men can have, uh, but we also see men at their group thinkiest, right? Mm-hmm. At their, you know, pack mentality at their, well, like, this is what I got to do at the moment where, you know, I like to talk about why do men choose cool over great? We see men at, at all points of that spectrum. For you, as you... Um, as you yourself know who you were as a man and as a boy, how has that influenced the way that you talk to your daughters? 
Oh, that's so hard. Um, it helps that you've always been a pretty decent man, um, but uh, we've all slipped. Yeah, I think um, getting insight into how people operate in groups versus how people operate individually is so rich um, in in the in the question that you're asking here because. Um, I know I have lived a different life in groups of men than I have been individually, um, both for the better and for the worse. Um, and uh, you have always chided me, uh, as you have seen me speak over time, that I love telling stories. I love telling rich stories. There's a talk that I used to do that was 50 minutes long, and it was one story for 48 minutes and two minutes of close. That was it. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> but in all of the stories that I tell, very few of them have me or my life as a character in it. Yeah. Um, and there's probably there's a bit of this self-deprecating nature that I have that it's tough to tell a story when you don't think it's necessarily as good as the other stories that I can tell. But the one that I routinely include in almost any environment that I work with men particularly in is I tell a story of the uh, essentially the worst animated movie that's ever been created. Um, and I'll, <laughs> oh, I'll, no. I'll save you. Are you talking about Rango? Yeah, I'll, I'll save you the details. But uh, um, ahead, if brother, for those tell, of you. Tell the story. Tell the well, story. Well, we won't go into all of it. But I will say that if any of you have not seen Rango, you can just thank the Lord that you have not wasted those two hours and four minutes. Um, but if you haven't, <laughs> let me bring you up to speed. I can give you the plot real quick. So the plot of the movie of Rango is there's a lizard uh, who wears a cowboy hat um, in the desert. plot that's it uh oh sorry wait 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 wait. big plot point it's dusty oh no it gets really dusty um so uh that's basically the film that that's that's rango and uh um i i was not impressed my girls made me watch it um secretly i think that my wife bought it because uh johnny depp is the voice of rango and i'm like you don't even see him she's like i don't have to like Okay, um, but anyway, uh, we watch Rango, and like two hours into the movie, it's almost over, and it was, uh, I just, I didn't get it. I didn't get the movie. It sounded like the Pirates of the Caribbean walking through the desert, you know, because it's Johnny Depp as, as a lizard wearing a cowboy hat, walking through, I don't know what he's doing or whatever, but the last thing he says in the film, like literally after two hours of com me completely being mesmerized at how this got made, um, he turns to the camera, and the last thing he says, he looks straight at you, and he says, no man can escape his own story. Oh. And then he turns and he walks away. I'm like, oh, how did you not start the movie with that? Like that right there is a good line. Start there and go somewhere because that is a fantastic line. But it made me realize like the value of the individual story instead of the collective story, because you can feel invested in it. You can feel trapped in it. You can feel like you're living it. Like you can feel like you're being pulled along by it, but it's individual. And so when I talk with men, this I, when I talk with women also, but when I talk with men in a group, I talk about the power of the individual story as, a, as opposed to the collective story. Because when I work with men in fraternities, they get referred to as a group all the time. When in reality, they're not a group. They are a collected bunch of individuals and they are individual stories being lived out. And so when we think of ourselves and understand the power of ourselves as individuals instead of just one cog 
in a collective or one cog in a chapter, we control our actions a lot more intelligently. But also in that same talk, I get into that story by showing a picture of my three daughters. Um, and I mean, they, at the time of the picture, they're 10 years old, you know, so they're cute little kids, you know, just blonde puffs of, of joy with Panthers jerseys on. Um, and, uh, but I, I say, I collectively refer to them as my daughters all the time, but they're not my daughters. They are, they are Talia, they are Ren and they are Elliot. They are three specific individual young girls who will be young women in chapters near you someday. And they are individual. Um, and you will never serve them well. You will never understand them while you think of them as a collective, as a group, as a, as a something, instead of as Talia, as Ren, as Elliot, as specific people. And I think that's when I you know, think of that men collective or raising as a dad, I've got to think of raising them as me, um, which is deeply flawed and has had made terrible choices in my life. But but hopefully is is showing them individuals around them that are making good choices that are worth emulating. Yeah. And that's so I mean, that's so hard to do because we hold ourselves we hold ourselves to impossible standards um, and, and, and we know that. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I don't know what the impossible standards are that you hold yourself to, or to those of you listening, what are the impossible standards that you hold yourself to that you can never reach and therefore you can never give yourself hope. Um, and, I am only as good as that time where I hurt somebody, as that time where I let somebody down, as a time where I embarrassed my parents, as the time where like I poked my mom in the eye in third grade. And I think about that story to this day and will routinely still apologize to her about it. Um, <laughs> and like it was completely unintentional. I mean, I was being extra, not me, but uh, <laughs> but, you know, I was being extra in the moment. I didn't need to be like and this is my mom right and like i didn't need to do that but it obviously i wasn't gunning for her eyeball um i don't had i didn't have any resentment at that point in my life for her cornea um but still like i'm that person who like embarrassed his mother and hurt his mother in front of an entire room of people right and like those kind of stories like they just they 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 haunt you and, and, uh, you know, I've, I haven't been shy about the divorce that I went through, um, and like the stories around that and how that's something that I thought I, that I need to overcome and, and the times where I hurt somebody or said something stupid or didn't know any better because of my privilege and said something that was, uh, that was off putting to someone who grew up differently than I did, who looked differently than I did, who thinks differently than I did. Um, at the time I didn't know. Um, and so it's like, you're not it's one of the reasons why I, I never worked with men because it was like, why the hell would you go and talk to men? Hmm. You, you've done X, Y, and Z and you've done A, B, and C. And like, you're not good enough. You're not the role model that men need. And so it's, again, it's like, we forget to, uh, I mean, see the forest through the trees. Um, and we only hold ourselves accountable to these little bits and pieces. And, you know, I hear you doing that a little bit with yourself as well. Do you feel that? Well, I mean, you know, the cheesiest thing I've heard about social media over the years is the whole idea we compare our deepest, darkest, worst moments to everybody else's highlight reel, because that's all they release on social media. Sure. And so I think there's an element of that that'll feed into every bit of who we are now and how we 
consider who we used to be or who we have progressed into becoming. And so I think that's just an evolution that's going to, it's going to, I don't know, it'll wrap me up forever, I'm sure. And uh, I'm glad I don't have to parent a boy. Um, <laughs> I, I get the, the, the process of being a young girl is something I don't know. And so I get to learn it as I parent it. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a part of it that it takes, it takes weight off my shoulders in that way. I like wading into the lives of college men. I used to joke for years and years for almost 10 years, I guess I, uh, I coached, uh, girls soccer, um, for no reason other than, I don't know, my younger brother played competitive soccer. Um, so that qualifies me. I don't know. Um, but I <laughs> like never played a day of soccer in my life. Um, but coached a girl's soccer for years and years and years and years and loved. It was a wonderful experience. And by the end, I was coaching girls at like the 12-year-old, 13-year-old range. But I was also working full-time with fraternity men. And I was realizing, and this is not in, meant to be insulting in any way, shape, or form, the two groups of people I was working with, 12 and 13-year-old girls and 18, 19, 20-year-old men were making very similar decisions about their life at the same time. Like they were going through identity issues of the same type at the same time. And I, I could deal with the men at that age. I don't know if I could deal with the men and the decisions they were making when they were 13, but I was dealing okay with them at 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. And I still do to this day. I mean, started working with college men in 1994 or five, something like that. And so 25 years later, I still love the experience of sitting down with a chapter of men and just saying, well, what the heck is like, what's your life? You know, what is this? Like unpack for me. I want to understand. Yeah. Let's in, let's, uh, let's lighten it up for just a second. Whippy. Cool. Let's, let's do a, a segment that I like to call uh, things that you didn't know you needed to know about mm -hmm. me, but now we're grateful that you did. We're working on the title, but uh, so far, I think it is workshop that out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe in future episodes, if I remember before five minutes, before the show. <laughs> Uh, so deep in prep, uh, deep in prep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Big, big in prep over here. So Whitby, I'm curious, uh, if there is, what is something that you think people need to know about you that they didn't know they needed to know? So, uh, need to know is a really dangerous way to put that because there's very little <laughs> that people actually need to know, but on the, you likely wouldn't know, um, I'll start with this one. This is a, you probably wouldn't guess it, but when I finish it, you'll say, yeah, it sounds about right. Okay. So I've actually come in third place in a highly competitive CrossFit competition here citywide in Charlotte. Um, and so I, I have CrossFit for a couple of years um, and I'll, I can, you know, give you the juice later on on it. But uh, uh, if, if you've never heard of it before, you know, I, I can talk to you about that. Maybe veganism, something like that. Things that no one would ever talk about. But uh, um, <laughs> that's the number one rule of CrossFit is to talk about CrossFit. <laughs> yeah, pretty much so. <laughs> uh, so I came in third place at a CrossFit competition at one point. But the thing that will always be remembered is as my name is being called as third place in, of course, the master's division of, uh, of CrossFit competition uh, that, they, that they were doing, I majestically run up towards the podiums that they have and attempt to jump onto the third place podium and proceed to trip over it to the point where the crowd that is clapping all of a sudden goes to the <gasps> 
100 people in one room all going, oh, because I have literally wasted every ounce of dopamine in my body. I have exhausted every ounce of energy that I have <laughs> to the point that I can't get on the podium. So that was my introduction and also close to my ending of CrossFit competing. So, <laughs> Wow. I did not know that. I know that you won. I remember uh, liking that post because I'm a good friend. <laughs> um <laughs> And that's how I show deep compassion for people who do monumental things <laughs> like, um, but uh, that's, that's incredible in front of a room filled with box jumpers. Yes. You, I could not the jump could not into jump a box. Last box. Not even one. <laughs> I love yep. that. That's a fun story. All right, here we go. My turn. Growing up, I had an obsession with stuffed animals. Like I had a full-blown menagerie. None of them were glass. Sorry, Tennessee Williams. Um, no, they were all stuffed. And uh, my favorite one was a koala, a koala named Mimi. Uh, and uh, and Mimi went everywhere with me. Mimi, my mom probably sold Mimi, sewed up Mimi at least... 47 times Mimi is actually currently buried in the front yard we made a gravestone for Mimi as well put it put Mimi in a shoebox uh and uh so yeah rest in peace to Mimi the best named stuffed animal I had was a walrus named Schmedley nice which is it didn't even have a monocle but his name was Schmedley it deserved and, uh, a monocle it deserved a monocle anyway there's a that's a random fact about me what else you got for us Whippy well I, let me just tag on to that one for a second totally unintended um, I did not have a let's say rich uh, collection of stuffed animals as a child mm -hmm. I narrowed in and had a Snoopy collection um, so uh, yeah. <laughs> and there's my dad with asking about the imposter Snoopy so I had a collection of Snoopies which included an original Snoopy um, that was like an original 1970s Snoopy doll that I had sort of loved so well that it was flat um, there was other ones there was backup Snoopies there was large Snoopies and small Snoopies there was, Snipe, there was Spike who was Snoopy's cousin if you remember who was from the southwest and had little whiskery kind of things I do yeah. remember that that's a and so there was all of those. But at one point, I, I think it was in college, I came home from college and there is this Snoopy uh, waiting on uh, waiting on my bed. And it looks sort of like the original Snoopy, but it is not oh, no. the original Snoopy because the original Snoopy had had an arm missing that my mom had sewn and I knew where it was sewn. And she may have actually attempted to cover and re-sewn something or whatever to make it appear to be the right Snoopy, but it is not the right Snoopy. This is an imposter Snoopy, and it is still an article of contention in my in my larger family as to whether or not that is an imposter Snoopy or the real Snoopy, which... Wow. Real story, imposter, imposter Snoopy. There we go. There we go. <laughs> not, a, not a fact that I had anticipated sharing in any way, shape, or form, but you talk about stuffed animals, you got to go imposter Snoopy. <laughs> I love it. So uh, here's the last fact that I'll share and then we'll jump back in. Um, my parents would not let me get a any sort of pet when I was younger as far as like the, the quintessential. No dogs, no cats. Um, and, and my dad was allergic to cats, so that was totally fine. I didn't even really love cats. Uh, and so no offense to the cat people out there. I mean, maybe a little offense, but anyway. Um, so, uh, but uh, we could never get a dog and whatnot. So um, so there were other, other pets that I was allowed to have. And, and the one that I'll tell 
you about today, I'm saving other stories for later days, is that at one point I had two anoles. And anoles are lizards that you can pull their tail and it can come off and they can still live and you have to feed them crickets. And now I got these two anoles just because I wanted to have a pet and I immediately regretted it. If my parents are watching right now or listening, this is the first time they're hearing this, but I hated those damn things, but I had to make it believe like I loved them because I needed to show them that I was a competent pet owner. Mind you, they... (laughs) Mind you, they got out routinely, and if they didn't get out, the crickets sure as hell did, and uh, it was it was a true disaster. I was not. I mean, those two rest in peace, and I am sorry for not being the dad that you needed. Uh, <laughs> there we work. go, folks. That segment's called "Things You Wanted to Know About Us" or "Things You Now Know About Us That You Didn't Know You Needed to Know About Us." Whippy, let's jump back in. Let's jump back in and uh, and talk about this and talk about this. You recently went through a gigantic life transition. You had to make a huge pivot. You worked in uh, in 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 a faith community in Charlotte, North Carolina, for a number of years. I'll let you kind of tell the backstory there. Um, and uh, but uh, things kind of. Uh, uh, things kind of came to a head and decisions had to be made. And one of those decisions uh, was to move your position under somebody else or kind of give it to someone else and whatnot. And in that moment, again, you'll fill in the gaps for me here. uh, But in that moment, you had to go from, I know exactly what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. I love how I am serving the community. um, And because you were able to play in the band and you're so musically talented as we see the guitars behind you um, and uh, to like, oh, shoot. I'm in my mid forties. What, what the hell does someone do now? What, what happens? Can you tell us a little bit about a little bit, fill in those details that I messed up or missed. Um, but then also talk a little bit about what did it feel like to have to make a complete switch? Oh, that's, uh, um, so, you know, Ira glass that hosts, uh, um, what's the, this American life. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who always, always wanted to be Ira Glass and she got the chance to meet Ira Glass. And uh, the question that she had, like everyone's asking him the very, you know, the stupid questions that people ask Ira Glass, what's your favorite story? Or, you know, those kind of things or whatever. And her question was so good. It was, how do you actually get people to tell you these things? Because there ain't no way in the world I would tell you the things that people tell you that you then put on the radio for millions of people to listen to. And his answer was so rich. He said, I need to catch people in the middle because if they finished figuring out that story, they can't tell it well anymore. Um, You have to get them while they're still living some part of it. So it could have happened 50 years ago, but they can't be done processing it, figuring out, living it through to some degree. And so I, try to embrace that as much as I can. Um, But I realize that I'm still in the midst of that transition to some degree. And so therefore I don't have a hundred percent perspective on how to tell it well yet, because it has been a rich and beautiful year. But uh, as you said, I worked for uh, a church, a non-traditional church uh, here in Charlotte for almost 15 years, for 14 years, I guess. Um, I worked at a place that I absolutely loved and still love. It's a wonderful community. The people um, that I met through that still remain some wonderful friends. My musical companions that I met through it that I've recorded albums with are some of the richest relationships that I will ever know in my life. 
Um, I got to marry people as a part of it, you know, including yourself. Um, I um, got to make music and lead people and create teams and uh, serve as a ringleader to people's creativity. I was our creative director, our pastor of creativity for a long time. And my job was to sort of whip people up with just some sort of spur in their shoe that annoyed them enough that they had to do something. Um, And then they would do everything. I didn't have to do it. They, I just annoy them enough that they wanted to create. Um, And that was, it's a, it's an opportunity I'll probably never have again, but I will cherish those 14 years. But last year, as transitions happen, we had had a ton of staff changes that had happened, community changes, and the role that I had just didn't make sense to be a full-time staff role anymore. I was among the oldest that was there, and it be, it made um, a lot of sense for the role to transition to being served by volunteers instead of full-time staff member who was 47 years old or whatever I was at the time. And so... Last May, I had to make that transition in a very short amount of time from the place that I worship, that I know people, that I met my wife, literally met my wife at a band practice at that church. Um, And uh, without that, I don't know who I would be. But going from that being a core part of my identity to um, having to embrace other parts of my life as identity orienting. Um, and figuring out which parts of those are things I can carry with me, which ones, which parts of those I have to uh, learn new, what skills are translatable and which skills get left behind, those kind of things. And so it's been uh, challenging for dang sure uh, for a family to go through a total upheaval when you're in your late 40s. Um, but I mean, I wouldn't trade it in the world um, I'm in a completely different profession now. I still love the college work that I do, but I love the, um, you know, I'm a creative strategist with a, with a digital company here in Charlotte. And it is, it gives me the chance to do so many really interesting, intensely nerdy things that I like to do um, and still be creative about it. Um, but in such a different environment that I don't have to compare the two. Um, I was worried for a long time that I would always compare what I do next with what I did last. And it is so completely different that I find that I don't need to. And that is liberating and beautiful. Um, But I've been able to maintain relationships like with yourself that is that are made outside of that or some of the relationships through my times at the church that have come with me that they just change a little bit or you learn things about them or whatever. I, I think that learning process is what is truly fun in it. And it's helped Tammy and me to take a look at what's important for our family, what's important for our marriage. Um, Yeah. I think that, I mean, that's so powerful Whippy because uh, I I mean, the fact that you were able to make the pivot and now, I mean, we could sit here and uh, right now it sounds like it was pretty smooth, right? But you and I had some powerful conversations in the middle of it, especially very early on of like this. I mean, it truly was your identity, right? I mean, you introduced yourself with that first. Um, and, uh, and, and, and and so that's really, um, it's, it was truly heart wrenching for you. I know. Um, and it just, because you loved what you were doing, it's not like you got fired from a job that you hated, right? No, <laughs> and you're, no. So, but I wonder, 
Um, and, and, and you may not be at this place yet. And so that's totally fine. Feel free to push back. Um, but was it the disruption that your life needed at the time? Like sometimes these big disruptions are huge gifts. Um, and I don't know if you're quite there yet and seeing it that way. Um, and, and maybe you will never get there either. Let me not write your story that hasn't happened yet. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, but still I'm wondering, you know, so, so often these big disruptions, like take what we're in right now, this is a major disruption to everyone's life. Um, and there's ways to look at it, um, in a really negative way. Um, yeah. and just be like, I miss this. I miss that. I miss that. It's okay to miss things. I'm not telling people not to do that. Um, but at some point in time, you make the decision to stop missing and to start seeing what is now possible. Yeah. Um, how was that process? How was that process for you, um, in, in this big transition? So, um, I promise this is going somewhere. Um, but, uh, Rango. Um, <laughs> Rango. No, um, you, you know, I nerd out on all kinds of, uh, war stories. Um, and we'll tell, I'll, I'll drop a world war two story on you any day and I'll make you love tanks and trenches and all this kind of thing. And there's reason and meaning to it. Um, one of the most random facts that I love knowing and not telling, because I think this might have the, might be the first time that I've said it out loud, actually, is uh, if you go to the beaches of Normandy right now, approximately 5% of the grains of sand or the grains of whatever is on the beach in Normandy is shrapnel. That means one in 20 pieces of something that you pick up in your hand is a piece of metal that was intended to kill somebody. But the beaches of Normandy are beautiful now. They have this, this really amazing grainy color to them that didn't exist before that all that shrapnel. I'm sure they were beautiful before, but it didn't look the same before the Normandy invasion that laid all of this horrific metal in the sand that is degraded to these tiny itsy bitsy pieces that one in 20 pieces is that like symbol of death but it's a part built into that beach now. I feel like there are really hard moments that happened in the course of the last year and even the year leading up to my leaving my last job, but they are not things that I regret, not things that I would trade. Yeah, I would love for it to be easier to do some of those things and I'm not gonna be cheesy and like every bad experience is a good thing in the future. Cause no, some bad experiences are terrible crap that should never happen. They don't make you a better person. You don't wish them on anybody there. I mean, many of you know, there are terrible things that can happen to people. This was not in that category. That was not even remotely in that category, but there are really dark parts of it that will always be in that handful that I pull up and look at. It's always going to be there. Whether it's beautiful or not, it's always gonna be in that handful of sand or junk or whatever that I pick up off the beach. And it'll get more beautiful over time, I hope, um, but I'm not gonna trade it out in any way, shape or form. Yeah. I, I don't know if that answers the question, but I just—I mean, we just got whippied, is what just happened. That's what—that's what I mean. If y'all. <laughs> That that moment where someone tells a story that when they're done, you just sit there and look at them, um, and uh, because there's nothing else to say, brother. First off, uh, I'm really excited for that uh, to be in a future speech. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I've not used that, but perhaps you'll be helping me build something around that. We'll see. 
I got your back. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I think, I think the way that you put that in, articulated, that was beautiful. Um, I'm not even going to try to pick, pick through it. Uh, and uh, I love that. I think uh, to look at this experience in that way, and even knowing that, you know, is the beach beautiful yet? Your new beach is quote unquote, right? Is it beautiful yet? I mean, uh, beauty's in the eye of the beholder for sure, um, but you beholding it. So, uh, <laughs> let's see what you did there, <laughs> but still, uh, but still it's interesting to think about, uh, yeah, I'll be fascinated. This, this would be an interesting point to come back to like in, in two years, five years, 10 years, how do you define this moment? Right. When we look at the timeline of our life, we can't put every single, not every single thing gets a dash, but moments like these, these crucible moments, they're the ones that we come back to yeah. because they're, I mean, that's where the pivot happened. And so, uh, so, uh, I appreciate you sharing a little bit of what you went through in that time. Here's the last thing that I want to touch base with you about Whippy is that um, you have the opportunity as someone who worked at a, worked at a church um, and, and worked at a church to have a lot of conversations with individuals about religion um, and working with believers, non-believers, doing a lot of stuff with youth um, and, and whatnot. And, and, and I love the way that you approach religion. I personally, as you know, I'm not a super religious individual. I've, I hold nothing against it um, as long as it's you know, using its powers for good and not for evil. Um, but uh, I think that the way that you have conversations around it is really beautiful. Where did some of that, where did your capacity to teach what you love um, to a world that isn't always looking for something new, a new big belief system, even one that is as uh historically flawed as many religions are. Sure. Um, so like, how did that happen for you? Where did you find your love in, in finding that as a, as a vessel to teach or yeah, your vessel to teach it? Well, I mean, I am sure in a different way, but similarly to what you just said, I'm, I'm not actually inherently a religious person either. Like I don't actually like the religion, religiosity of, faith communities and churches and all that. So no matter what your faith construct is, the religion element typically gets in the way for me, um, like with the actual construction of it. Um, the faith and the conversations that go with that are, that's the rich part for me, because that to me is not to be too cheesy or flippant about it, but that's the musical component of it. Um, I mean, I love music. I mean, my wife was a music teacher, was a music major, um, is a musician and is teaching my children to be musicians. Like I love music. Um, and so I think when approached in a gentle and beautiful way, the conversations that we have about faith and what we believe need to be musical. They need to be uh, lyrical. They need to, when you are in an ensemble, you need to allow other people to play. You need to allow for each instrument and voice to have its own role, whether that is in alignment completely with you or not. Um, I get supremely frustrated when people don't believe that having a faith structure around you is valid. Um, I, I will be as unwoke as you can possibly be in the world of, I don't think you've opened your brain if you think that people that have faith 
are uh, judging in a terrible way just because of who they are. Um, I think there is a richness to um, believing something, no matter what it is, that should be embraced and should be fostered. Um, because even if you don't wind up in the same place that I am, I want you to I want you to explore. I want you to listen. I want you to listen to the people around you. I want you to prod and to poke and to invest in and attempt to create music with the people that you uh, are sitting next to. Um, uh, we've talked before about the, the concept of sort of the late night living room leader kind of thing of it's super rare that the president of anything um, is actually in control. Um, which we know to such an incredible degree right now. Um, but uh, it, it is most no, frequently, no comment. <laughs> it is most frequently um, the person that you have invested in or that is invested in you to the point that you allow them to sit next to you in a living room and lead you that way. And I think that so much of faith and conversations comes in those moments. Yeah. Um, one of the, the basically the man that hired me to work for the church, um, wonderful, what intelligent, brilliant man. Um, I remember one of the first things that he taught me was um, if you want to love someone, uh, you need to see them first. Mm. Um, and uh, I have I think that can be bastardized in a really good way that if you want to lead someone, you need to see them first. Yeah. Cause I think leading only comes from loving to some degree. Cause loving is not always a touchy feely smoochy, you know, lovey thing. Loving is sometimes ugly and dirty and nasty. Um, and so is leading. And so I think the faith conversation comes from that. Do you see people? Do you feel seen? Um, and so, I mean, that, that's where I live on it. I will, I will dig in deep with anybody when it comes to their faith, not in a way to, um, I'm not here to, to, to convince you. I'm here to listen um, because I'm amazed and I'm fascinated by the richness of all different ways of approaching it. Yeah. But here's the thing, and 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 I love the way you just put that. I mean, what a stunning analogy uh, of of teaching it through ensemble, um, where you know it, it's not the flute doesn't have the lead the entire time, right? It's not all saxophone. Sorry, right. Barry. Um, but uh, <laughs> did you get that one? Did you get that Barry sax? Anyway, yeah. so. Uh, <laughs> Cheers. Um, <laughs> as he raises his Guinness. Yeah. So, um, so uh, I love, I love that concept. Why do you think, why do you think people are so afraid to talk about religion? Is it because of the approach? Like most people's approach is just so poorly where like, like you mentioned there, they're not, they're not invested in the human. They're invested in, in the conversion or in the convincing um, sure. more than other things. Like what, like I think in both ways, right. And, and talk, for, for non-believers having conversations about here's why I'm a non-believer. Like it's just one of those conversations that we know, like don't bring up politics, religion or any, like any of those things. But it's such a beautiful way to get to know the way someone's brain works. It's a really beautiful conversation if you have the right conductor and instruments that are excited to hear each other. Well, I think you just listed it right there. I mean, there's not a lot more to add to it than you just said. I mean, it is, it's about listening. Most people don't listen to understand. They don't listen to enjoy. They listen to respond. 
And uh, conversations about deep soul stuff never works in that environment. It just will never thrive in a situation where the person sitting across the room from you is listening so they can respond to you. Um, if they're listening to understand you, if they're listening to love you, if they're listening to enjoy you, really deep, rich stuff can happen. Um, and uh, way too frequently, if there is anything that's disagreeable, whether it's politics or faith or whatever it is, um, we spend our time attempting to respond or inject our perspective instead of listen to hear someone's perspective. Um, so I don't shy away from saying what I believe and what I love and who I think loves me and that kind of thing. But um, that doesn't mean that I'm going to shove it down your throat. Um, but I, I do hope that at some point we can listen to each other on what you believe and love um, in that same way. Yeah. Yeah. That was beautifully put. Uh, that was really beautifully put. Um, a, a good buddy of mine, his name's Chad Littlefield. He talks it, he takes it one step further. He says, uh, you know, it, it, it listen with the intent. Are, are you listening with the intent to hear what they're saying? Or are you listening with the intent to win? And so Oof. often in religious conversations, political conversations, it's about the win. It's mm -hmm. not about the understanding. Um, and uh, there's such a power to creating a pause where people just actually like, let me just take a minute. One of the one of the best conversations or excuse me, one of the best uh, things that was asked of me uh, before a retreat that I went on. And it's something that I ask a lot of individuals as they're stepping into something that is a difficult conversation, a tough time with a loved one, a hard conversation with a child, or if they're stepping into a conversation where it's like, Hey, even people who come to my living and perfectly live retreats. One of the questions that I ask them before they come is how are you showing up today? Hmm. How are you showing yeah. up and, and recognizing like, am I showing up with my, with my, with my walls up? Am I showing up with my spikes out? Am I showing up with my arguments locked and loaded here? Um, or am I showing up with just a, a genuine curiosity Justin mm -hmm. talked a lot about that and enabled him to be a little more forgiveness with meeting his father in Ghana and, and just that power <laughs> of showing up with the intent to, to hear. So like, yeah, uh, not to do exactly what we're talking about, not doing, um, but um, <laughs> there's this movement right now. And let me trample on one of the things that you love most in the world. Um, and that's improv uh, comedy. Like we, we live in a, a no, but world. Um, and improv comedy teaches the concept of yes. And, um, you know, how do you accept what's saying, say yes and move on to something else. I think there's great value in the no response whatsoever, mm -hmm. unless it's perhaps to say, unpack that for me. Yeah. Like, I actually just want to hear more of what you said. I want to contribute nothing to it. Mm -hmm. I just want to hear more and deeper of what you just said. Yeah. There, like we, I feel like I've been taught recently that the highest and best is to say yes and where it's not always to say yes and sometimes it's it's just to sit quiet. Um, particularly when you start to get the fact that you might not actually understand what the other person is saying. Blow your mind, you might not actually know <laughs> everything about them. Um, yeah you have the opportunity to ask them to unpack it, to tell you more, or just to sit for a second 
Don't say no. Don't say, but don't say yes. And just sit. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think we do it enough. Yeah. I mean, so many of us are, are flat out afraid of silence also, right? So it's a fear of silence and also a fear of being seen as less than uh, sure. or, or whatnot. And those, those, two, those two powers combined uh, <laughs> form hasty conversations that lead to defensiveness and unproductivity. Um, mm-hmm. and a lack of connection. And uh, yeah, I love the way you put it. You're right. I, I am an improv nerd and, and improv. Yes. And works great. And that's a, yeah. that's a rule. There's, there's plenty of places where yes. And it can be really powerful when we're thinking about innovation, creativity, when we're thinking about all those things. It's oh, a beautiful. It's a place right there, but mm-hmm. every concept has its place. Um, and uh, yeah, it's not, it's not just some general like swath of like, use it everywhere. Um, it's not Windex from my big fat deep cut right there deep cut totally whippy i am so excited <laughs> that we got to spend this time together <clears throat> i can't uh i cannot thank you enough i agree with this quiet reflection is a lost art um and uh so i can't thank you enough for joining the show and, and being a part of diner talks brother it's been so special so much fun. To hang hang with you and hear some uh hear some stories and and just get inside your brain for a little while man i love the way you think i respect you so much as a man and fellow human being i can't thank you enough for being on the show it's a blast man thank you so much for letting me be here and and hate on myself for a little while into it not into it hang on not into it I love it. My friends, if you are listening to the podcast, make sure if you want to hear this Q&A coming up with Steve Whitby that you check out the YouTube channel. Go to my YouTube channel. Just type my name in on YouTube. It'll pop up and uh, and make sure that you tune in for this Q&A. But if you got to go right now, you take care. Thanks so much for tuning in. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Diner Talks with James. It was so much fun getting to hang out with you and finish our milkshakes in that squeaky red leather booth. (laughs) If you do me a favor and smash that subscribe button, that would be dope. And also, if you could leave a review on iTunes, well, come on now, you're going to make me blush. (laughs) Also, if you want to be a part of the action, we record these live on YouTube Live every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to YouTube and type in James T. Robo and smash that red subscribe button so you know when we go live next. Also, while we're on the subject, I'm James T. Robo all over the internet. I post meaningful content on Instagram, witty content on Twitter. Let's get connected in some other places, folks. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about the guest tonight, please check out the show notes. My friends, until next time, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. Y'all take care.